welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind in the Southern Hemisphere. Two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Farmer, joined, as ever, by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. How's this? <laughs> I see you're in a very Friday mood there, Gabriel. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty Friday. I must say, it's been a grand week, and I'm so excited to see the Springboks play again. Mm. I find nothing more sort of just like boringly disappointing than rugby politics in South Africa. Uh, uh, yes, I very much agree with that. And nothing is a greater relief than just watching the men that represent our rugby elite put on the green and gold. And as we used to say in the Princeton rugby team, sock them in the mouth. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was good that stuff. Was, good stuff. English coach. Uh, I, I, I spiritually feel the same way as you, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually going to watch any of the sport. No, 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 that's fine. You don't have to watch. <laughs> also, they're playing against Georgia, which is like my favorite. Like I really um, – my, my fiancé's family, they – they the russian georgian what georgia is what's been happening with georgia in in moscow and st petersburg and some of the more zhuzh, uh russian countryside has been very interesting because ever since yeah. they've always quite liked the georgians they sort of have a slav language but they're quite independent sort of uh, religiously they've always been seen as i think something like how the brits saw the boers uh after the after the Second Boer War, it's just like, mm. wow, they fight so hard and they're so insistent on being themselves um, that you, 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 you find a certain kind of uh, balmy army, pommy guy who, who just loves nothing more than those, those, those Boers who make their biltong and ride their horses. And, oh, very good, very good. Savages, but very good. And there's a little bit of a Russian <laughs> vibe towards the Georgians that they're kind of like savages, but that they that they're noble savages. And then when after the war, which wasn't a war, uh, sort of almost ten years ago, when Ossetia was effectively annexed, the Russians then also felt like, well, maybe the Georgians are actually more civilized. So there have been lots of Georgian restaurants opening up and Georgian plays and people like reading Georgian poetry. So now, now they really are like the noble sophisticates. It's and interesting because... I, I, they're the I rugby like the, team. They're the only Eastern European great rugby team. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, are they in Europe? I, I guess sort of, kind of. <laughs> anyway, they're on the line there between Europe and Asia. Uh, but I'm sure the feeling actually isn't particularly mutual. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those documentaries about it, but the way that uh, Russia is continuing its annexation of pieces of Georgia, it's it's the most simple and amazing thing at the same time. The yeah, Russians no, they, moved yeah, the border okay. fence forward. They literally moved the fence like overnight. <laughs> they wait. They wait for the Georgians' border guards to 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 move away on patrol or changing shift or whatever, and then they push the and fence forward. And dude, it's slowly. literally like there are farmers and they're like the fence at the when the start of the planting season, the fence running through my farm, dividing the two countries was on the one side. And by the end of it, it's on the other side. And now I've got no crops to grow because they've also 
put the fence in every in-between bit and so it's, crush the seeds. It, it, gets, it, it gets worse than that. Sometimes they basically kidnap people. They, I remember seeing uh, actually um, the Top Gear people, the Grand Tour, they did a, they did a trip to, to Georgia. Yeah, I did and, a great um, episode of Top Gear. And <laughs> they, they, there was a, there's, a, there's a Georgian man there. He's an old farmer. And he woke up and suddenly he was on the Russian side of the border. And he, he yeah. can't get back now. He literally <laughs> napped and he doesn't have a visa. He <laughs> it's... So I'm, I imagine that the Georgians are not um, particularly fond right now of, of, uh, no. of the When I was, the last time I was staying there, I nearly went to Georgia with a choir to go and sing ancient uh, folk songs because I was in this ancient f f folky Russian choir. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> As one does in Russia, you drink vodka, you, you sing double bass harmonies, and you feel <laughs> that life, life is bad and death is complete. So you know what else is there? Um, I I spoke to them about their previous experiences of visiting Georgia, and it it's it's much like they're these masks, right? So so the attitude is like quite negative to Russian leadership and quite positive right. to Russian people. And there's a sense of, ah, oh, the poor Russians are like pretty badly oppressed. Uh, and the Russians oh, yeah, totally no, agree. No. Russians I all feel... think that they're terribly oppressed and <laughs> they just think that their Tsar is their savior from the government, from the middle strata of government. And South Africa just becomes more and more like this. And I see a little bit of this with Eswatini, so, right? You've got this yeah. semi-coup there and there's like a lot of ground level sympathy for like the SWAT. There's not a coup in Swaziland, but there've been reports that the king has fled. And a lot of South Africans are like, oh, those poor Swazis living under an absolute monarchy. And a lot of Swazis that I spoke to when I was in Mpumalanga were like, oh man, these poor South Africans living with this terrible, terrible democratically elected mob uh, as the leadership. And so the people feel very simpatico until it comes to like jobs and stuff. Because they both agree that each other's leaders are, are not good, but that there's a savior in there somewhere. The king saves us from the like middle structure, or the yeah. or Ramaphosa saves us so, from the ANC. So, so I was thinking the other day about this theory of yours that you have about uh, about Putin, that the way that a lot of Russians see him is literally as protecting them from their own government, and that Putin's just not powerful enough to to sort the country out. But you know, we can all hope that one day he'll become powerful enough to, to save Russia from its you know, oligarchs or whatever. Yeah, from the Kremlin. This is really, it reminds me, it's the same kind of relationship. Imagine uh, a boyfriend who rescued his girlfriend from a pimp. She was forced into prostitution or something. Mm. And every time she gets at all upset with him, he says, uh, uh, if it wasn't for me, think where you'd be. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a really abusive relationship, but it just kind of perpetuates itself forever. And I, I really does feel the same way when you talk about the Russians like that. Dude, there's, there's something about human beings that, and I, I, it might be that there's something about the, the bizarre psychology of the human monkey that, that, that is the kind of thing we all are. It might also be that there's something in the structure of power that people always, that even the, uh, an ideal rational angel is obliged to commit themselves to the thought that uh, there's some kind of sacrifice in abrogating power, in 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 delegating. 
yeah to to someone else the uh, capacity to basically redirect which uh, where the guns are pointing yeah and that in that sacrifice uh there's a i don't know this is where the psychological point is it it might be that so i think there's a rational way to manage that sacrifice and, and great uh, philosophers of liberty uh have thought quite clearly about how it can make sense to have a representative government what does it mean there's this wonderful phrase government of the people for the people by the people okay that sounds intuitively very compelling but how do you actually analyze it in a way that it makes sense how can you right. have power as a citizen and at the same time be in a position where the police can arrest you and put you in jail yeah and there are good ways of explaining this but i think there's something about that resignation and you see it in romance you see it in family relations you see it in friendships you see it in in the abusive and corrupt forms of all of these where where people kind of think well i am giving something up i mean in a friendship you give something up right in a friendship you right, you have to help your friend move <laughs> yeah you give up time you give up i think you really have to i think friendships only work if you grant your friend some authority so if a friend tells me if a friend disses me i feel bad even if i don't think they're being reasonable that just yeah, seems yeah. like the kind of byproduct yeah. of friendship you, you, it wouldn't you, be a friendship if i don't care right, exactly, exactly. you give them a kind of power over yourself uh, yeah right and so when and when people make that give give that kind of power then th there's a temptation to surrender a, a kind of clinical analysis of how that power is being meted out um there yeah the stockholm syndrome kind of tolerance for your for your overlords um and yeah i think as we've discussed in one of my favorite podcasts that i remember sort of on the stability of of feudal systems i think that's probably yes. part of it nice. uh and and we do see we do see a bit of that with but not with the georgians themselves but with definitely how the georgians see the russians and how a lot of russians see Themselves, uh, yeah. See themselves. So it'll be, anyway. It'll be nice to see that clash uh, of uh, of of muscle and bone and flesh. Just to just to kind of deal with different problems for a while. Just like deal with the problem. Of like, how do you get a little like oval semi pigskin thing across a <laughs> bit of paint on grass with fifteen? <laughs> Men that weigh 120 kilograms trying to stop you. The big questions. <laughs> Those are the big questions. So what were we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about, I think, uh, your theory from last week of, uh, I think you pitched it to me as how to make critical race theory and presumably all of the critical theory cousins, um, yeah. at least most of them, uh, a little bit less stupid because I think... Uh, I'm not too going too far on the limb to say that they really don't they don't stand up to much unless you accept certain crazy premises. Right, right. So you have to have they, they mostly they really only work if you have an ontological claim. Ontology is just sort of the study of what exists. You have to have this claim that there exists a kind of soul that a geist, a spirit that uh, exists wherever social life certain social identities obtain. And if you do believe in these kinds of spirits or Volksgeister, um, as the theory was propounded in Germany in the 19th century, then it all follows from that, right? 
uh, then I think CRT does follow, and so so do its cousins. Um, and if you don't believe in that, on the basis of sort of great gains of empiricism, uh, you know, it just turns out we figured we've realized that uh, that spirit. You know, when you talk about saint spirits at our old high school, we used to talk about saint spirit a lot. This kind of feeling of camaraderie between the boys. Uh, and you talk about sort of patriotic spirits and so on. People for a long time kind of thought that there was this supernatural entity for thousands of years. The ways of thinking about governments or bodies politic was that they had a soul. Um, and it just turns out that, you know, uh, that hypothesis is not only wrong, it's one that you can do without. It's a fairy tale that you don't need. So Americans can think about American spirits and American patriotism uh, without needing a bloodline story of a monarch who's who's you know carries that spirit through and without thinking of they talk a bit about God now and then uh, but mainly sort of in terms of some kind of uh, creator of individual humans uh, certainly not as something that uh, is on America's uh, that makes America America there's no soul there's no American right. soul in this in this literal ontological sense what there is is a discursive practice. People talk and interact with one another in a way that creates a thing called America. There's a constitution, which is the founding of America, which is just words written by men. They don't have to uh, think that the constitution, like the Bible, was somehow divinely inspired. They can think it was merely reasonable. Uh, this is, this. as much as Americans are, most Americans are religious, um, part of the reason, part of the one of the most interesting ways in which the separation of church and state works there is that they don't think that God created America, even if they do think God created sort of everything uh, in the background sense. So, okay, uh, Nicholas and I are atheists about uh, Volksgeister, right? We just don't believe that there are these, these group spirits. And right. that puts us already at odds with CRT theorists. Uh, and that might make it seem like the conversation, like there's just no more conversation to be had. In the in the same way that you know, if someone thinks that you have an immortal soul that's going to survive after death, and someone else thinks that you are constituted by a material form which is developed as a result of evolution, and this form gains ac grants access to the case, um, so that you can see things and interpret facts from them so that you can impute reasons, uh, intentions to others. You can engage in reasonable discussion. You know, these two people might in some sense seem like they have nothing to talk about when they talk about what happens after you die because the one's going to say, my soul goes to heaven or hell. And the other one's going to say, well, I just, I just don't know how to prove that you're wrong. And the first one's going to say, well, you need an act of faith to understand all of this. So, you, you can see how there are genuine conversation breakdowns. And I do think yeah. that there are genuine conversation breakdowns. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers was David Lewis. Uh, and I think he is quite widely considered to be one of the greats, one of the top five greats of America in the 20th century. And, uh, and, he, and he said, look, you know, one thing that philosophers really need to accept more often is that sometimes you need to shrug off an argument. Like this is... Uh, <laughs> 
He said that about ra uh, radical skeptics. Radical skeptics doubt that anything exists. Their ontological position is that nothing exists. This is yes. all effects of my imagination. And he said, logically, there is nothing I can... He proved to his own satisfaction and to mine, as it happens, that there's no reasonable argument against that. And that trying to reason your way out of that is the wrong, mis is the wrong way of going about it. Right. You just have to shrug it off. Yeah, you're 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 stuck. You're stuck, and and you just can't meet on any ground whatsoever. It's just oh, I because mean, that, there's nothing okay. in common, <laughs> right? That's the so answer think, that you have to get to. That it's just uh, well, I guess okay, sure, if you say so. <laughs> yeah, and we can live in peace so long as your radical skepticism or ultimate solipsism uh, doesn't dispose you towards sort of killing and raping and doing all kinds of terrible things because you. You know, if if someone is if someone doesn't believe in morality, that's fine. Um, if someone as acts immorally, they don't do anything. Yeah, as long as yeah. they don't do anything about. Then, unfortunately, it. you know, this is how the court system works. You, you, <laughs> you go, yeah. one with a gun makes you go into a little room, and then you have the option to reconsider your position that no one else exists, and that you have imprisoned yourself uh, through your imagination, or you have the option option to come to terms with reality uh and it just doesn't we are human monkeys you know it, it's it's unfortunate it's un, we can't we can't argue our way through everything so i don't want to set up the hopes too high yeah but you you but. think that there is a way that we could perhaps make the conversation a little bit less crazy and i think one thing to do is remind ourselves about richard rorty Richard Rorty was born in 1931 in New York, I think. Went here and there, uh, I think. Died in 2007, which is just when I matriculated. Um, but hadn't had his most productive time for a while before that. He probably had his best time when he was at Princeton University as a professor there. He'd done some grad work there. And Princeton University professor. Ha, huh, we never talk about those. We don't. Not nearly often enough, um, but he is. I, th uh, I think if you did a, a widespread poll, and I think David Chalmers did something like this, you'd find that he's one of the top five respected American philosophers of the third part of the twentieth century. Um, of you know, so it's like pre-war, during the war, and after the war, you've got like the mid-century guys, and then the later century guys towards the end of it, and and. And I mean, there's there, there's no one who 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 kind of majors in philosophy in America who doesn't come across Richard Rorty, if they're actually majoring, just at an undergraduate level, uh, in philosophy. So he's he's canonical, and he's he's most famous for I don't know background point, you know I think when talking about academics. There's a temptation to um, treat them a bit like politicians. We must be careful of that. I, I think Heidegger is important to study, even though he was a Nazi or a Nazi supporter. I think Immanuel Kant is great, even though he was a racist. So, so on and so forth. Marx is worth reading, even though he was a total hypocrite. There's just a different standard when people are really excellent at, uh, at putting forward original arguments. Uh, that are worth considering, even if the, even if those arguments are 
are badly flawed or dangerous to talk about. You know, I'd be I'd be very worried right. if mainstream politicians know what's what's out there, right? Yeah. So so, and it's and 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 hermeneutically. The, the practice of interpretation, there's always two options, right? The one option is to try and sympathetically interpret, to try and say, well, you know, like Heidegger might have been a bit of a Nazi, but he was squeezed into that position by the policies of his time. And if you look at the best of his ideas, they're completely separate. Descartes might have relied on uh, divine intervener axioms in order to explain how we get to know anything other than our own existence. You know, he sort of thinks cogito ergo sum, that's all you get to know. And everything else is kind of a gift from uh, from some some divine intervener that you can't otherwise understand, uh, which is not very satisfying epistemic view. Uh, and, and most Cartesian scholars for the last 300 years have argued that we shouldn't take him too seriously when he says God explains how we get to know that there's an apple over there. Uh, we should rather interpret that as being a, a sort of um, kind of apologia that he makes to the church while he tries to do the real work because the project that he sets out for himself and that most philosophers do is like, let me try and explain as much as I can without faith. Uh, so that they say it looks like he can explain more than he says that he can explain without faith and then he sort of says it all really comes down to, to, to God. Without believing in God, you couldn't believe there's an apple, which doesn't really sound reasonable like i think you know atheists and, and theists can disagree about a lot but surely atheists and theists should agree that atheists can also believe that there are apples anyway that's just my claim <laughs> i'll leave you to think about it uh but anyway so there are these sympathetic interpreters who say no look at the circumstances of their times and uh and and use that as a reason to kind of excuse the, the bad things they say and separate that out from the good idea so always they seem like they're saying something terrible, ignore that uh, or reinterpret that. Um, and of course, there's a similar tradition within religion itself of trying to reinterpret religious texts in the best light. And, uh, and sympathetic interpretation is a very important practice. And the reason I, and this is why I'm saying this, right, is that I, um, I am going to be a little bit critical of Rorty, but also sympathetic. And, um, and I think that's an important kind of project to engage in, to try and save the best. Uh, and scalpel out the bad stuff. So Rorty, uh, Rorty kind of starts out with the following problem. The following problem seems to energize him for a lot of his life. Kant or Hegel? Kant, Immanuel Kant or Hegel? This was a question that everyone at a German or American university had to sort of answer until about the 1930s. And the question meant something like this. Do you think this, and this is the problem that energized Rorty, do you think it's possible to have a conversation in a perfectly hygienic conceptual space where the contingencies of history, where your own biases, your own failures as a, as a human monkey built into the machine are, are kind of scrubbed out like a doctor who scrubs away all the germs before he goes into surgery. Is that possible? Can you have a perfectly antiseptic environment, an environment that is antiseptic of, of, of bias or not? And the Kantian view is a little bit like, yes, you can get antiseptic, so you really have to make sure that you do 
before you enter the philosophy cha the philosopher's chamber, the chamber of secrets. This is where we come to discuss things, and it's hard to get in there. But once you're in there, it's because you've really scrubbed away all these lurgies. And the alternative view, Hegel's view, is much more. Um, now we'd say pragmatic. Uh, something like, you know, we're fallen angels. We're we're kind of funny monkeys, and we come. You know, everyone comes from a home is my way of putting it. Everyone comes from a society. And that informs the way that you think. And so reflection, the process of philosophy, the process of loving wisdom, is not trying to escape your uh, preconditions, but precisely trying to understand them through contextualizing them, and particularly through history, through historicizing, seeing the etiological chains, the chains of cause and effect that bring them to where they are. So the one view is in some ways more platonic. If you take the ancient analogy, the other view is more Aristotelian. Uh, the one view is more like pristine and everything's at right angles and kind of mechanistic and it's like pure logic is the framework through which you can see everything that there is. You can see the case. And the other view is more organic and troubled and tumultuous. And 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 it really thinks that all thought starts with history. All, all metacognitive thought, all thought about thought starts with thinking about what you last thought and what came before that. And so I don't know. Nicholas, of course, being a historian, might be inclined uh, <laughs> towards the Hegelian view. Richard Rorty mm -hmm. certainly was. Richard Rorty certainly thought that. No, I think I think I think not just me. I think that there's a there's a there's a kind of pragmatic liberal conservative type who's also very inclined towards the historical view, thinking that you know there might be some fundamentals here that we we should um, take very seriously, but ultimately we live in this complicated, messy, confusing, corrupt world, and we just need to sort of do the best with what we have. And and this is. So, and I think this is a little bit why Nicholas and I both sometimes have troubles with a, a, a latter part in the sort of sequence of intellectual history that I'm going to trace out here. So, Kanto to Hegel, Kanto Hegel, are you sort of pristine or are you organic? Then comes this really gets institutionalized. This, this is like a philosophical debate. Then it gets institutionalized with a Berlin historical school of economics versus the Austrian school of economics. And I think Nicholas and I are both, Nicholas even more than me, sympathetic to the Austrian school's conclusions a lot of the time, but troubled by the methodology. Because the Austrian school of economics is kind of born out of the idea that you can have these pristine mathematical equations that describe everything about how humans will work. You can sit in your armchair and you can postulate your way all the way to the ends of time uh, in understanding economic relations. Whereas the German historical school thinks that it's way more complicated than that, that your economic theories other, are going to be built on castles of sand. Around. Other way around. Yes. The Austrians think that all these theories are on castles of sand, and the Germans think that you can build the nice fancy models. No. No, 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 no. The, the Austrians are into limited government because they think yes. that it's difficult to figure out, and this is later Austrians, they think it's difficult to figure out um, 
a lot of answers that you that you a lot of precise answers. So here, right. so for example, price controls. Should the government be setting the price of bread? This is like a hugely important question in 1920s Europe, and it, and and it, at a practical level, Russians and Germans and everyone's kind of disagreeing about this. Yeah, because everybody's literally starving in the the 20s depression and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But before that, academics had been discussing it, and during, and then after. And the Austrian answer would be something like, the, the government has no way to figure out what the price of bread should be. If you have some model that lets you know what the price of bread should be, then that's built on a castle of sand. So in that sense, in the practical, right, yeah, precise yeah. sense, they're into epistemic humility, take a step back. But in the general sense, they're very much into a priori economic thinking. So you have a few yes, abstract yes, no, axioms. I, I, get, I get where you're coming from, yeah. And everything follows from there. So a lot of the microeconomics that you study, Adam Smith kind of stuff, you know, when you see a supply and demand curve, this is a perfect example of the pristine stuff, right? It's just like this beautiful, elegant mathematical model that's going to tell you what kind of price point that you're going to achieve given uh, this supply curve and this demand curve. It'll tell you how many units will be produced, what price they'll be sold at, and it's very elegant. And you don't have to know what language the people speak or what kind of clothes they wear, or whether they doff their hats, or bow, or click their heels, whether they're nice to their elders, or whether they sort of quietly shuffle them off into homes. None of that stuff comes to bear. You just need to see like three three lines on a graph, and two lines on a graph, and you're fine. That's sort of Austrian thing. The German historical school, uh, which often, by the way, was very anti-government intervention. Sometimes the on the on particular practical matters it could get the the two options could be um the two different schools could come to the same point right there are a lot of good german historical economists who thought that people the government shouldn't be setting the price of bread uh in, in, after a while they did uh, generally become more prescriptive and call for more government and partly this is because germany was kind of um laying the groundwork for these for the social safety net for the for the social state pensions and all that kind of thing but the point is the german historical school thought you can't really get a final analysis without asking questions like how do people pray and what kind of clothes do they wear and what kind of rituals do they conduct when they get married and in particular how do you do that you as the philosopher or economist who's trying to understand the society so again more biographically focused more indexed to the historical context that you come from and and so yeah Kant or Hegel pristine logic or like messy history Austrian school kind of pristine mathematical equations which end up showing government shouldn't interfere and market should be as free as they can be or a kind of messy thing that says well these societies have these values and these rituals and their cultures and they've got like hangovers from previous you know once if you have a demand monarchy where people kind of believe that uh, God and the king are doing a whole bunch of other things and you let go of that, you kind of need to replace that with a symbolic figurehead and a whole bunch of other kinds of things in order to give people something to continue to hold on to uh, because of the particular history of that place. That kind of argument doesn't appeal to the Austrians, but does appeal to the German historical school. Um, so they tended to be much more sympathetic with the, the, these kinds of uh, you know, uh, constitutional monarchies and, and, and kind of interventions and so on. 
So again, but you see this, and the sequence then plays out further into, in a way, the division of labor between sociology and economics in the 20th century. Sociology, anthropology, and so on, they kind of deal with the messy, complicated things and economics. Not all of it, behavioral economics kind of departs from this and so on, but a lot of classical economics in the 20th century. It's really like, let's just look at the numbers, let's collate these things, let's come up with these equations that, that kind of figure things apart. So Kantor to Hegel, uh, German versus Austrian, sociology versus economics. Uh, this problem, th this division, this is exactly the kind of thing that Hegel uh, liked, right? He believed in the dialectic. And, and this is a word that I think, you know, terrible lefty academics oh, are kind yeah, of poison no, for people. It's been abused horrifically. But it's basically just uh, two ideas clashing together to create a synthesis in the end, which is a yeah. And the synthesis right? is not just one plus the other. The synthesis is a surprising inversion of both. And and then the synthesis becomes the the, the next thesis, and then that needs an antithesis and a th synthesis. So it's sort of this thought that you have these never-ending conversations. Conversations shouldn't ever really end because of the kind of thing that thinking is and the kinds of things that we as thinkers are. Uh, the final solution that some Kantian logician empiricist absolutists kind of look for, uh, the last word. The last word is a dangerous and wrong thing to really seek out. Much like from a political standpoint, the eradication of evil is just the wrong kind of project. You'll, you'll make things worse if you really try and stamp out all evil. You'll make things worse if you try and get the theory of everything in one formula. This is a kind of Hegelian approach. And I think that um, what's nice about that view of the Hegelian is that it, it takes both spaces into account. It makes room for its own opposites, right? It says, no, we must debate with dogmatists and absolutists and totalitarians, you know, people whose views really seem to explain everything on their own, by their own lights, without contradiction. And if you start with a false premise, you can explain everything without contradicting yourself. VWO Quine kind of proves that. Um, and it's an it's an interesting, you know, if you assume this is there's a mathematical proof for this, basically. If you assume that one plus one equals three, then you can prove everything else without contradicting yourself again. <laughs> right. Uh, because anything that'll show up as a contradiction will just turn out to be a special form of this claim that that one equals two. If you yeah. so, if you start out with the assumption yeah. that a contradiction is not a contradiction, yeah, everything if you, if you else is non-contradictory. Yeah, if you break the rules of the system so completely, there are no more rules, and and that's why there's this breakdown in conversation between false guys believers and sort of and atheists about divine social spirits, who who like like me and Nick, uh, is is that trying to so. So far, I think I've laid a bit of the intellectual groundwork for understanding one of the problems with a lot of CRT critics is that they try and say, look, this, this stuff contradicts itself. And one problem with that is that yeah. if you really take the axioms of CRT seriously, it's not clear to me that it does contradict itself. And insofar <laughs> as it does contradict itself, it's not so clear to me that yeah, any so other theory yeah. fails to contradict itself. I mean, science, physics, the exactly. best physics it's, theories it's clearly like contradict themselves. Exactly. It's like it's like an argument where they started off by saying one plus one equals three. Mm. And then every time you point this out, they say, so we know that. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So I find it, I, I do find it a bit frustrating. Important at the level of journalism, um, but frustrating at the level of um, of a different kind of analysis to just go after CRT as being self-contradictory. Okay, so that's one point to make, is that like if you want to go after this, maybe there's something else that you have to focus on. Here's the second point, and this is where Richard Rorty really matters. So by the time he comes to prominence in the 70s, people have stopped talking about Kantor de Hegel, and they've stopped talking about the Methodenstreit between the German historical school and the uh, Austrian school. And in some ways, they've even stopped talking about sort of sociology versus economics. And in some ways, the, the, the um, philosophical equivalent in the literature is something like logical empiricism uh, versus idealism. This language has been abandoned too. And people kind of think that they have solved all of the problems in a certain way. And he does this intellectual history. He says, if you really understand what the best philosophers of today are saying, if you want to understand what Carnap is saying today, great logician. You want to understand what all the great logicians sort of after um, Wittgenstein and Tarski are saying, then you have to look at this history. You have to drop the assumption that these guys are operating in a, a pristine chamber of pure truth. See the history, and then you will see the bugs that have gotten into their chamber and the ways that it's infecting their thoughts and the mistakes, therefore, that they make. And I'm not going to walk you through the technical errors that he points out in their thinking. Um, but in terms of, I'll, okay, let me, I'll give you a brief sense just so that you <laughs> know that I'm not making it up. And so you can get a flavor of what this looks like, right? His, 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 his most famous book is something like uh, uh, Representation in the Mirror of Nature. And he argues that from Descartes, uh, the model of knowledge is representational which is to say to know something is to for a person to somehow have a representation like a picture in their mind which has some kind of relation to the case so there's three things there's the agent the person there's the case and there's this representation of the case in the mind of the agent or person this is the basic idea of what knowledge is and he he looks into ancient um, philosophers, he looks into scholastic philosophers, sort of Christian uh, uh, philosophers of the medieval era, he finds that they don't have the same model of what thinking is. They don't think of thinking as representation. Um, and he shows that if you think about thinking as representation, you fall back into a trilemma that had been identified by the ancient Greeks uh, as Agrippa's trilemma two and a half thousand years ago. And as one of the reasons that the scholastics and the ancient Greeks, Latins and so on, uh, did not think of knowledge as, of thinking as representation. The trilemma goes something like this. If you think about thinking as representation, all of the uh, representations, there's something in between you and the truth, right? And that's the representation. So it's, the, the modern way of thinking about it is it's a little bit like your view is that there's someone inside your mind, a little homunculus, a tiny little sort of goblin, who's watching a TV screen uh, that's projected yeah, on the back of your brain, and that's showing the world. Then you have right, to imagine figure the, out. Imagine the movie Inside Out. 
I haven't seen that. But Get Out also that's, has that. Yeah, that's exactly the the plot is about. Our, each emotion is like a little person inside the person's brain, watching what they do and pulling levers to control. And then the question is, well, what's going on with those people inside the homunculus, inside the little goblin who's watching the TV of your life? Well, is there a little guy inside of him watching the TV of that life? Um, that's kind of an intuitive way to put one of the regressions. Yeah, the Agrippan trilemma is something like this. Um, all of your claims are, are themselves justifiers. Every claim justifies some other claim. One plus one equals two justifies the claim two equals one plus one. Sorry. One plus one equals two justifies the claim two equals one plus one. Um, but there are going to be some claims. You trace backwards from the sort of superficial stuff to the core. What are the core beliefs that kind of, what do you really know? This was Descartes' pro project. You know, What do I know for sure? And the Agrippan trilemma from two and a half millennia ago is that all of the sort of original ideas are going to have one of the following problems. Either they are going to be unjustified justifiers. So there's going to be something that you know and you just know it beyond question. And it's kind of matter of faith. And the unjustified justifier, the thing that you know, which justifies other things that you know, but there's nothing that justifies that thing. This is like a skyhook, which is Richard Dawkins' way of putting it. It's like something that's holding up a lot of stuff but there's nothing holding it up. It's kind of, uh, and 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 Rorty shows in a very technical sense that this um, that this doesn't fit into the very logical framework that the best logicians of the time had adopted axiomatically. The other option is that you have an infinite regress, that it's turtles all the way down. Well, this claim is justified by this premise, and that premise is justified by that premise, and it keeps regressing back and back and back. So it is a little bit like the homunculus, you know. Uh, watching the movie, and then there's another homunculus inside that homunculus watching that other movie. Or, so those are two options that neither of which seem satisfying. The third option is that ah, justification doesn't really matter that much, and you get into a kind of chaotic, uh, sophomoric relativism. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me, and we shouldn't be talking about this so much. Just feel the vibes. It's okay. <laughs> Feelings are really what matter. Thinking, thinking is complicated. It's like a kind of side product of feeling, and you shouldn't expect too much from it because feeling is really yeah, awesome. And if you think too much, you get a headache. Just feel good. Yeah, you see, when I when we go on deep dives of philosophy like that, I must admit I do start to feel a little bit more sympathetic to that position as we go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's something that's. You, I mean, what's interesting is that once you get to that stage where you feel like you have to choose for a very fundamental, like what makes one plus one equals two true? Is it just true and there's nothing to justify that? Was Tarski ridiculous for trying to write a hundred page paper proving that it's true? In part by proving that in one exceptional preconditioned circumstance is false. Was that a ridiculous enterprise? Is it just the kind of thing that feels true and let's get on with it? Is it the kind of thing where we shouldn't argue? We shouldn't try to explain it? It, it? Sorry. Is it? Should we be dogmatic? Just say it's true no matter what. Should we say, well, it's true, but its truth depends on something else, and that's going to depend on something else, and it keeps going back forever? Or should we just say, dude, one plus one feels right as two? 
And so that's okay. Leave me alone. This is this is a serious problem. And Rorty's very serious attempt to resolve that problem amounts to one of two ways of interpreting him. What it amounts to in his own words is anti-representationalism as anti-authoritarianism. So he says there's something profoundly authoritarian about the representational view. And he means authoritarian in the undemocratic sense. And so his solution to this problem is that truth is just a story that we make am up amongst each other. And that truth is only therefore properly accessible, or the best kind of it is only accessible in a democracy, where the rules of how we converse with each other are mediated by the rule of law, the freedom of the press, kind of not letting any one person be the ultimate authority. Right. So, and that and only it's here that, it's here that you can really see the tendrils of critical theory kind of seeping in here, some of their views about truth and the universe. Good, good, good. This is Richard Rorty, very serious, very respected guy. He says, truth is just a convention, and it's a convention that it can only properly be established under a democracy, and once you have a democracy, the proper convention that you will find prevailing is one according to which truth is merely a convention, and you stop outsourcing the authority for what makes it the case that something is true to non-human facts of the matter, as it were. So he thinks just as once upon a time, uh, most people believed that you needed spooks or divine entities or something to convince people that this is right and this is wrong about normative claims, that normativity was thought to be uh, essentially a godly thing. Play Socrates really did a good job uh, in urethra of saying, in a way that's sympathetic to religious people, by the way, that, that God can't be the author of the good. Um, because goodness and godliness both have to be essential rather than contingent properties. And so whatever's good has to be good in itself. And, and God will then be good in itself rather than being the author of goodness, such that God could have made rape being good, but he just decided to make uh, protecting people from rape good. The, the latter view seems crazy. Um, and the former view seems seems sympathetic both to religious people and to secular people and 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 that has been the convention both in sort of serious philosophy and in mainstream politics in as it turns out democracies and constitutional monarchies and so on for hundreds of years that you don't always have to appeal to the some divine force to explain why something's immoral you can just say that's immoral you shouldn't kill your neighbor and we make laws to do that so he says, just as the law has been secularized, the law about what you should do and shouldn't, so too the laws of nature should be secularized. And this seems very appealing to scientists, right? Because a lot of scientists don't want to think that they're studying uh, the Quran or the Bible or, or the Torah. They want to think they are studying nature in itself. And he says, to really study nature in itself all of you guys for the last 500 years under the tutelage of Descartes have pretended to be secular, but you have said implicitly that you are studying the laws of a natural lawgiver. Just as uh, some people thought there was a natural lawgiver of what's good and bad, 
you think there is a natural lawgiver, some agent who made it the case that gravity is like this and apples are like that. And you must, you must wake up. You must wake up from that and study the laws of nature without a natural lawgiver. And with the thought that the only lawgivers that there are are other people, are the, are the debating contestants that you have. Okay, so so far, very interesting, difficult, because it's hard to see where it's wrong, but as you say, you can see where this is going, and exactly where it goes is that Richard Rorty proclaims himself to be a pragmatic ethnocentricist, because he says the most difficult thing, once you become this person who thinks the truth is just a convention, is then figuring out who's in the club that gets to decide what the convention is, and who is not in that club, and the story ends up becoming something like, People like us, we get to talk about it. People not like us, they don't get to talk about it. Not a racial ethnocentricist, an American ethnocentricist. He thought in America's democracy, we figure out what's true. And elsewhere, they've got their own axioms and their own things. And it's it's almost, now I'm giving the soft, nasty version of Rorty. And this nasty version is consistent with some of the things he's saying. I'm not just strawmanning him. And it is, it is the basis of... There is just no point in his in that side where there's any difference between Richard Rorty's view, sort of successful white uh, philosopher tapping into the grand traditions of, of French and German and English uh, sort of ancient Greek and Latin history of philosophy. He's all of those things. And then someone else comes along and says, okay, well, I'm going to tap into like blackness or or yellowness or coloredness or whatever it is and take all the same axioms you know your guys conventions you want to do polling you want to figure out gdp you want to come to equations about increasing the minimum wage decreasing labor whatever man that's just your rubbish that's the same as you know thinking jesus was white or whatever it is that you you people are up to uh I'm going to be doing the real truth and my truth and your truth don't yours is just wrong because you're not part of the club. That is pragmatic ethnocentrism. And Richard Rorty espoused that idea. And I've talked a lot about W.E.B. Du Bois who uh, rose to prominence in the 1880s and 1890s as a as a black kind of champion of Fawkes guys theory. Uh, right. And I want to put a lot of emphasis on, them, right? yeah, exactly. And I want to put some emphasis on Richard Rorty having a similar role to play as a as a sort of whitey in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, legitimizing ethno pragmatism, the thought that truth is merely a function of who you hang out with. Right. Not just in the contingent sense of like what you're going to believe is true is determined by who your friends are and what they point out and what they hide from you. But in the in the more, much more fundamental sense that what actually is true is different for <laughs> that circle of friends to that circle of friends. And it's a stunningly difficult idea to address because in a sense it comes back to this ancient distinction of – the Hegelian kind of historical, well, there is something about how we think that is just connected to who we are and who we've hung out with and what the right, causal right. chain is from the beginning. And the other side is like, no, there is this objective, transparent, 
crystalline reality that we can access in a pristine, hygienic environment of logic and reason. And in the first half of this conversation, I think we certainly felt, and most of you maybe feel, like, oh, no, the historic thing is much more realistic. But then that when you take it to this extreme of truth being <laughs> relative yeah. to who your buddies are, but, it seems meshuganer. Yeah, it seems it seems like we've arrived at a point of complete madness. And this is this these kind of conclusions are exactly why I'm so uh, skeptical sometimes of philosophy. Is that um, not not on an intellectual grounds? In that uh, I think you know it's like a waste of time or anything like that. But just that it it gives you such powerful tools to come to completely mad ideas. And this is a very good example of that. <laughs> is that some guy just sat down and he thought for a really long time and then he managed to deconstruct truth, reality, and the universe entirely. <laughs> Dude, and his ideas were radical. Like he literally, his claim was that before Descartes, there were no minds in the sense of minds as things that represent the truth. <laughs> because he's a because he's a relativist, right? So he's like Descartes right. comes up with this picture where knowing something is representing it to be the case. Well, then him and all his friends, and it turns out all his friends end up being like everyone in Europe or something, uh, <laughs> end up thinking that way. And then when they think that way, well, then it's true. If you think as a representationalist, then you are representing the case. Uh, but before that. And for a few guys after that, and he's part of the, the sort of alt-friendship circle, um, it's something completely different. And, and they don't have minds. They have something like um, characters. And, dude, I'm sympathetic to Descartes. I think Descartes is Meshuggah. Descartes is completely crazy and very, very bad and very dangerous thinking. I think he's done a lot of damage. I really think that Descartes with all the best intentions in the world, has done a lot of damage. I'm so glad that he did it because I kind of feel like this is this is the grand narrative both of human history and of individual life, is you do at some level have to learn through error. So you have to make explicit what you really think. Some people get persuaded. It takes a while to then figure out what the deep problems are. And I think Rorty's got a point about uh, the, the, the falsity of the representational view. My, my own view happens to be that we access facts when we're when we're in the right circumstances sometimes we hallucinate but when you look at the apple you're not representing the apple you're just seeing it it's there and you gain access to that fact this in the modern language is called disjunctivism sort of says there's a disjunct there's some of the time you see what's really the case and there's no representation the other time when you're representing that's called hallucination that's or dreaming or making shit up in your head um that's become a very conventional view in the last uh, 15 years Sort of interestingly enough. Um, anyway, I, I I feel like we we we're running on time, so I I, yeah. I I can't make. There was another sort of broader point that I wanted to make, but I'll I'll cut through to to the to my simple, to 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 the to to I think the way that Robert Brandom uh, deals with Richard Rorty. Um. And, and, and maybe propose that there is a real bit of help that could be offered to good faith critical race theorists uh, who are willing to let go of their false guys dogma and who really want to help. Um, maybe maybe they could uh, hear what Brandom says to Rorty. Now, who's Robert Brandom? He is 
uh, sort of, uh, one could say with small exaggeration, half the reason that Pittsburgh University is one of the top three rated uh, philosophy departments in America. He's a really great professor and he's a Hegelian scholar. And he has this piece about Richard Rorty who, and he was close friends with Richard Rorty and he sort of prevents the, the weak version of Rorty and then he tries to find the, the strong version. And the strong version, is, it's a simple development. So he says, okay, I, he says, I think we have to agree that truth, insofar as it's intelligible, is a product of language. And language is something like a ship that we steer together. So it is a historical thing. It's a contingent thing. It's a very human thing. It's not a pristine thing. It's a, it's a matter of convention. So it is you and your buddies kind of figure out together how to talk about stuff. So in the ultimate sense, or in the first sense, Rorty is right. All claims to truth are ultimately grounded in conventions that are established by human beings. But the development and the, and the way out of the radical relativist stupidity is to realize that one of those conventions might be to grant authority to the case, which is to say, we have the authority to establish our conventions, but then we can offload our authority, just as you offload your authority when you make a vote in a democracy, which Richard Rorty cared so much about. You can sort of give your vote to the apple and say the apple like the president or the policeman. The apple is going to determine what's true or not true to say about the apple. So if we come to the convention that that apple is poisonous, uh, that's one thing. But if we, in addition, give our vote to the apple to say, well, the apple will ultimately decide, is it poisonous or not? Then we've gotten out of the trap because then the thing that we're beholden to is the case. That is our convention is that truth matters in the real sense, not just in the sense of what we happen to agree about, but rather that what we happen to agree about should, insofar as it is possible, try to follow what is actually the case. That is our convention. Our convention, so you, you our friend group right? is built around truth. You, you realize what you've done is that we now have to call this episode Why Apples Should Vote. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. That is Brandon's uh, answer. Brandon says you should give apples the vote. Give apples and trees and tables and chairs, give them the vote. And if you, I think that is the right thing to say to critical race theorists. Give, give, Grant, grant that there are black knowledges and there are Indo-American knowledges and there are Chinese knowledges and that they're completely different to white knowledges. Grant, let me grant you that. I don't want to grant you that. I, I don't like that idea. I don't like thinking that way. But philosophy is hard and it means you have to hold your nose and dig into the sewer. Let me grant you that there are knowledges that are indexed on race. Let me grant you that there are these different spirits floating around and some are black and some are white. Let me grant you that. When you want to talk about the truth, I dare you to make your convention that apples and chairs and stars and black holes, that they get the vote. Because I reckon once you do that, once, once anyone is committed to their own statements being, being beholden to things outside of themselves and of their friend groups and beholden in fact to sort of neutral triangulable facts of the matter 
then we found the common ground. That is the common ground of reason. Then it's too late for them to hold on to the worst of their ideas. And the practical application beyond apples and trees is, is exactly what we do at the Institute, right? Let me grant you that the only thing that matters is black pain. White people's pain doesn't matter. Colored people's pain doesn't matter. Indian people's pain doesn't matter. Black people's pain, that's what matters. Black people's views, that's what matters. And no one else's views matter. Let me grant you that. Okay, if, if all that means is you and your friendship circle get to decide what blackness believes, then I can't, call, I can't really engage with you. I can talk with you, but I can't really engage with you. But right. if you grant that other people get the vote on what that means, then the polling, then the... Then the investigations into murder cases, into school racism allegation cases, then actually going and speaking to other black people who disagree with you matters because it's bringing right. facts to bear that can change your mind. And, so and if you give process, apples the vote, people's minds can change. Right. And, and in that process, you reveal that, in fact, they don't really care what black people think as a whole. They care what them and their friends think. Well, yeah, for some of them, but for some of them, maybe not. Yeah, not, no. not, 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 for, not for, I think, the average kind of person who, who, who sort of buys, the, buys into these theories a bit or the, 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 the do-gooder activist or something like that. But I do think that there are a large contingent of ladder-climbing, self-promoting intellectual types who are far more interested in what they can gain out of the system than necessarily. Uh, and, and yes, that's not a very philosophical or intellectually good habit to be in to assume that your, uh, you know, your opponents are basically evil. Um, but I do, think, I do think, I do think there is some truth to it. Um, I do think there's a reason why overperforming high achieving elites tend to be really attracted to some of these ideas. And it's because they're great pieces of technology which they can use to 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 bludgeon people out of the way while they climb up the greasy pole to the summit of their careers. Hmm. Hmm. No, dude, that's for sure. And you've seen we've seen the same thing in science. Thomas Kuhn, the great historian of uh, of science and philosopher of science of the twentieth century, this is his point about scientific revolutions. And I so I'm so glad that I did this philosophy course in 2019 with a semi-retired Witz professor on the philosophy of science and revisited Kuhn because it prepared me better than anything else for the plague where so many scientists have not given votes to the apples. They have not left it up to the tests and the data to decide what the best policy is. They've designed models that bake in their assumptions, guarantee their solutions, and then they use institutional powers to bludgeon their opponents into silence and thereby boost their own prestige, power, and property. It is, it's a disgrace. It's a tragedy. And the only way really to get out of it is to insist on the point that Rorty and the critical race theorists are right about, which is that if we're going to get to the truth, it's not going to be because the apples do the hard work. We have to do the work of going and setting up the election. It's called science. It's called real science. Is you set up the election and then you don't know what the result is going to be. You let the apples vote. You let the, uh, the, the case numbers show you what the facts are. You let the uh, laboratory tests show you what's actually going on. It's a terrifying thing because you might yeah, bet you on the wrong horse. Yeah, but it's, yeah, the, that's, yeah. it's up to us to do the work. If we, if, if we don't set up the election, the facts don't become relevant 
in if, anything if, but if, the worst possible way, which is just that there's a revolt. When the facts revolt, yeah, if, uh, if more, we die basically. Yeah, if if more scientists if more scientists let the apples vote, there'd be a lot more studies coming out of institutions and universities and all that that said something along the lines of data inconclusive. <laughs> yeah. We can't the votes. We don't know. <laughs> not, not, not the thing that we see all the time, which is this. The conclusion is is hidden under 17 layers of picking out something really specific, and they've massaged the data viciously to try and get to the conclusion. And then even so, they still only found a 0.02% chance increase of whatever. We um, harangued the voters. We only let – we put terrible adverts out. We didn't let the – we only let five of the, like – population of a hundred thousand actually cast a ballot in the final election the rest were disqualified for being sort of anti-social it's do this anthropomorphize it's basically anthropomorphization right in, in a sense the hegelian impulse uh can be caricatured or the rortian impulse can be caricatured as kind of anthropomorphizing everything this is what it is to say give the apples a vote and 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 my my own position, by the way, is that that's someone else's way of thinking about things. Um, but if they want to think about things that way, hell's teeth. They must grant. They must. They must. They must give the bloody apples a vote. Then. <laughs> All right. So let's call it to a close. No there. more voter repression of apples and viruses and test tube studies and the like. We must end voter repression of the facts. The facts must decide. Yes. Not very well said. Thank you. Uh, and with that with that in mind, do we have recommendations for this week? Well, I have many recommendations because Nick is going to start with the right one. If you know someone who's into critical race theory, send them this. <laughs> it will, it will guess... disturb them. It will disturb them to yes. think that the closest... In time, the closest uh, genealogical ancestor of critical race theory turns out to be a white guy who was super into the ancient Greeks and was <laughs> literally an explicit ethnocentricist for America, of all things. He loved America more than anything. I mean, just blow yeah, no. their minds, okay? No, I, 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 know, I know someone uh, This reminds me of someone I, 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 I've never met them, but I've heard of them through other people. But, uh, they're an avowed socialist, but... They demand that their housemates pay contributions anytime they use anything of their property at all. So <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing better than when someone someone uh, exposes one view and then very passionately lives the alternative. <laughs> very good. Very no, just kind of hypocrisy is important to point out. No, yes, that no, is it is, and and actually hypocrisy is not that bad. Um, as, as, but that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah. But so my um, mini recommendation is send this to someone else so that they can think about that. And also so that, dude, and if you do engage with critical race theorists, sometimes you have to just suit up and take out the javelin and sort of stab their arguments in the heart, protect their personal integrity, uh, in, in their bodily integrity and so on. Um, but sometimes you might find someone who's like a little bit on, on the waiver and just and just – I don't know, man. Consider, consider the following proposition: give apples the vote. Like, make blackness or yellowness or whiteness, whatever it is, whatever your like friendship circle is, that's now going to have a new convention about the truth. 
Make the convention that you get around be that facts, independent of whether we like them or not, matter. Indeed. And if you want to see a really much smarter way of laying this out than I did, uh, Robert Brandom, I think the paper is called, uh, I'll figure out what the paper is called while, while Nicholas gives you his recommendation. So I'm pretty sure I haven't recommended it so far, but last week I recommended something from Hindu spiritualism. Um, and this week I'm recommending a guy, I think he's a Swede, who I think studies theology as a as a, as, a, as a doctoral student or something. Anyway, he has a YouTube channel called Let's Talk Religion. And he basically just gives scholarly interpretations of theological positions and viewpoints and schools and that kind of thing. And it's just really interesting. I'd recommend, especially he's got a video um, on some of the big divisions within early Islam. Uh, and it is called uh, Reason versus Literalism. Kalam and early, early Islamic theology. And it's just really fascinating because you can kind of see the, the roots by which we get to, you know, uh, the, the, the Islamic world today. Um, and it's, and I, 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 it was very enlightening for me uh, anyway, mm -hmm. to, to, to learn about something that's not just outside of my intellectual space, but outside of my sort of cultural heritage in a sense, uh, mm. because, you know, I know a bit about Christianity because it's the culture I grew up in, but, Islam is far more foreign to me. And so this was really interesting. Um, Dude, right, I, so yeah, that's, I, good, that's good. my recommendation. Good. Mm, I like it. Okay. So mine is um, these lectures. I, I read them with my darling uh, fiance who is studying under Bob Brandom at Pittsburgh University. He is her PhD thesis advisor. Um, but uh, we see the, the, the nefarious web of nepotism and interconnectedness and, Dude, friendship circles are for real. I mean, two crickets and our listeners, we're a kind of friendship circle. Bob Random, I see that he's not only published the, the the two lectures, they've also been put up on YouTube. Each is about an hour and a half long. Oh, They're called Spinoza Lectures 2021, Robert Brandom on Rorty and Hegel. And you'll see both if you just look that up. Spinoza Lectures 2021, Robert Brandom, Rorty and Hegel. And the actual title of the thing is fetishism anti-authoritarianism and the second enlightenment rorty and hegel on representation and reality and to give you a sense of how ambitious this project is if brandon is right if i'm right if giving if if if, if giving votes to the apples is uh is the right way to go about things to help those who don't yet believe in reality uh but do believe in their friendship circles being the determinants of facts then we can achieve a second enlightenment book. And the first enlightenment started out with a little friendship circle of people who said, guys, let's do science, not on the basis of trying to reinterpret ancient religious texts, but about by, you know, leaving the moral stuff and, and the, and the uh, uh, ritual and all that kind of stuff to the side. And let's try and give votes to the apples on a different paradigm, on a different paradigmatic basis in the first enlightenment. And the upshot of that is almost every nice technology that you enjoy today from the computer or cell phone that you're listening to this on to the democratic coordination of violence under the rule of law that protects you uh, and those that you care about from the caprices of the human monkeys that we all are and our terrible impulses. The second enlightenment needs to happen because we are going through the second enlightenment. And light and dark 
ain't got nothing to do with our skins. Our skins are all invisible when there's no light, and they all uh, have a kind of beauty and organic uh, integrity when the light is shining on us. And the darkenment is just really a kind of choice. And this is Brandon's ultimate choice. If you've gotten to the point where you're choosing between dogmatism and ultimate relativism, it's already too late. You need neither of those options are good. You need to take five steps backwards. And uh, I think voting for apples—that's the—that's the point you need to go back to. <laughs> and if you want to hear Brandon's fuller version, check out his 2021 Spinoza lectures. I see they've only got 500 views on YouTube, and. That is a sense of dude. things, dude. He's literally one of the not, three not most respected American uh, academics in philosophy and the most respected Hegelian philosopher, the most respected philosopher whose premise is that this is not a pristine environment. I'm going to argue with the self-consciousness of my own bias. And he's got 500 views. So he's like less popular than us. And uh, I'm, I feel very privileged to be in a position where I can say to our audience that if, if you would like, you can go check out two lectures that are, that are. I'm sure he just reads out the text, uh, and the text is amazing. It's very playful, by the way. And can I give one more, last little thing, just to give a sense of how playful it is? So he describes this this point in the Agrippan trilemma, where you don't know whether to choose between. Uh, dogmatism, okay, I just believe this and, and don't talk to me about it, I just believe it I, I don't want to hear about it, I believe it or regressive, infinite regress like, okay, this is justified by a previous thing, which is justified by a previous thing I can't tell you where it all begins, it doesn't begin anywhere it's just like, esoteric or full-on relativism look, it feels right, I believe it therefore it's okay he says, once you've gotten to that point, you've already fallen off the cliff and so he says, my job is to put up the fence as close to the cliff so that you've got the most intellectual terrain to explore, but far enough for the cliff that you won't actually fall off and you'll <laughs> remain in a discursively intelligible space. And his best friend and another one of the best respected American philosophers is McDowell, John McDowell, who is a South African that most South Africans don't know about, who emigrated to the U.S. to study at Pittsburgh and came back once to South Africa, I believe it was, I don't know, quickly ran back and jumped into a small tent in the garden of Pittsburgh University for two weeks and self-isolated uh, to kind of cleanse himself, I think, of how depressing it is to revisit home. Anyway, and he says, what Brandon says about John McDowell, and I'm paraphrasing but only slightly, is that John McDowell doesn't do the fence. He is like a springbokki that can dance on the rocks right on the very edges of reason without falling over into the abyss. And it's a <laughs> wonderful thing to behold. And he knew Richard Rorty, and Branham knew Richard Rorty, and Branham likes the sympathetic version. He says both Branham and Rorty looked at McDowell, and they're like, wow, this guy's amazing because he breaks our rules without falling into madness. And it's fantastic. <laughs> but we want to put up the fence for everyone else, everyone who's not a springbokki of genius, everyone who kind of needs some basic, just sort of home truths to hold on to. And if you listen to those extras, get the sense of the fence. And I think you'll get the sense that the fence starts with giving votes to apples. Okay, that's me. Very good. All right. And with that, we wish you a pleasant day. Uh, this will probably be up on Saturday or Sunday, um, weekend or what's left of it. 
and a positive week ahead. And we will see you next week. Have Go Springboks. Go Springboks. May they be eternal, victorious, and all conquering. And go, um, go, Joburg Lions. The Lions must beat the Lions. <laughs> yes. That's very meta. It's like a philosophical joke. Eh? Lions are playing the Lions <laughs> on Saturday. <laughs> and with that, uh, I'll say to you all keep the flag of liberty flying. <laughs>